Welcome to The History of the Christian Church, Season 1, with Lance Rolston. This episode is titled Expansion. We're going to spend a little time now tracking the expansion of the faith into different areas during the Middle Ages. We ended last time with the story of the conversion of the Frank King Clovis in 496. When he was baptized on Christmas Day by Bishop Remigius of Reims, 3,000 of his warriors joined him. It was the first of several mass baptisms that took place during the Middle Ages in Europe, and it raises the issue of the paganizing of Christianity. The task of missions usually proceeds in one of two ways. The first and more common route is that of individual conversion. Though in the New Testament we find converts being called into immediate baptism, it wasn't long before conversion was followed by a period of instruction before baptism. That time for instruction in the basics of the faith could either be short or long, depending on the standards of the bishop or the community of believers. This form of missions, that of individual conversion and baptism, was the method that was used by the church for the first three centuries and by most Protestant missions from the 19th century to today. That's because of the emphasis on an individual change of heart in evangelicalism. While this certainly finds support in scripture, it can miss an important dynamic when people convert to Christ out of a pagan culture. Their change in faith almost certainly means being uprooted from that culture, and sometimes leading to the need to physically relocate to an area where their faith will not endanger their life or the lives of their family. For that reason, another method of missions has sometimes been used, that of mass conversion, where an entire group of people make a communal decision to forsake their old religion in favor of following Christ. Now, I suspect that some listening will respond to this idea of mass conversion with a bit of distaste. Evangelicalism has placed such an emphasis on personal salvation that the idea of the conversion of an entire community, well, it seems highly suspect. We often talk of receiving Christ as one's personal savior. So the idea that an entire village or tribe would turn to faith in Christ at once seems disingenuous. But consider this. The idea of personal individual freedom is in many ways a distinctly modern, Western, and democratic concept. Even in our own time, much of the world has little concept of personal or individual freedom. They understand themselves as part of a family or a village or a tribe. They're a member of a community of people where autonomous individuality is regarded as dangerous, a threat to the survival of the group. For much of history and a good part of the world, the idea that you would change your religion all on your own while everyone else believed in other gods was simply unthinkable. Conversion would enrage the old gods and so endanger your family and neighbors. This was something that several Roman emperors used as a reason for opposing Christianity. Some Christian missionaries realized that the key to the conversion of these communal pagan peoples was to win their leader because his choice was nearly always adopted by the entire tribe. To be sure, these missionaries understood that salvation was an individual issue, but they knew that the key to being able to work for individual salvations was to win the leader, who would in turn lead his people in a mass conversion. Then they could be free to work the faith into the lives of the people in a more intimate and personal way. The downside to mass conversion is obvious. Many who formally converted by being baptized never went on to a real faith in Christ. They took the label of Christian without ever being genuinely converted. 
What made this especially troublesome was when it was the ruler who feigned conversion. Some did for purely pragmatic ends. Submitting to baptism often brought them political and economic gain. Mass conversions might make it easier for genuine converts to practice a new worldview, but it also imperiled the faith because the unconverted brought with them the old superstitions, blending them into Christianity in a syncretistic religious amalgam. This was the case with the Frank King Clovis. He went through the motions of conversion, but Jesus remained little more for him than a divine warlord. Gregory of Tours, who lived a century after Clovis, was his main biographer, and Gregory says that even after his conversion, Clovis used deceit, cunning, and treachery to expand his kingdom. He sent bribes to nobles and those responsible for protecting a rival king to betray him. He told another king's son that if he killed his father, Clovis would support the son's ascent to the throne and then make an alliance with him. Well, the son did as Clovis hoped. He killed his father. Clovis then promptly announced the son guilty of the heinous crimes of patricide and regicide and took over his kingdom. As Dan Carlin likes to point out in his Hardcore History podcast episode, Thor's Angels, when you think of the Goths and the Franks of this time, picture a modern criminal biker gang. You're not far off the mark in what these Germanic barbarians were like in both mindset and appearance. When Clovis submitted to baptism, all he did was trade in his black leather vest for a navy blue one. Among the barely converted Franks and other Germanic tribes, long dead saints stepped in to replace the numerous deities. Each saint adopted a role that the old gods had performed. So St. Anthony took care of pigs, St. Gaul looked after hens, Apollonia cured toothaches, and Genevieve cured fever. St. Blaise soothed sore throats. For every human need, the Germans posted a saint to take care of it. Many tales circulated about the miraculous powers of these saints. One told of two beggars, one lame, the other blind. They got caught up in a procession of the devoted who were carrying the relics of St. Martin. But these two beggars had made their living off of the alms of the pious, and well, they didn't want to be healed. Fearful lest they be cured by their proximity to the relics, they quickly struck a deal. The one who could see but not walk mounted the shoulders of the one who could walk but not see, and they tried to exit the procession. But they weren't able to get away quickly enough, and both were healed. Such stories were plentiful. As with Constantine the Great in the early 4th century, we can't be certain if Clovis's conversion was real or feigned. Certainly, much of his behavior after his baptism is doubtful. But the political benefits of conversion were not lost on him. Clovis was a man of huge ambition. He wanted to be more than a chieftain of the Franks. He wanted to be king, a chief of chiefs. He knew that he needed to distinguish himself among the many competing power centers in Western Europe. By joining the Roman Church, he set himself apart from the other Germanic kings who were all Arian. This move secured the support of the Gaelic Roman nobility throughout Gaul. Clovis was the first leader of the Franks to unite the tribes under one rule, changing the leadership from a group of chieftains to rule by kings, and ensuring that the royal line would be held by his heirs, who became known as the Merovingian dynasty. Not long after his baptism and the quick following of 3,000 of his warriors, Clovis pressed other Frank nobles to convert and join the Roman Church. He understood the religious unity of the kingdom was crucial in staving off assault and to further campaigns enlarging his borders. Wars of conquest became a means of, quote, liberating other people from the air of Arianism, unquote. And the church at Rome was not at all averse to having an armed force at its side. 
Clovis wasn't all that successful in expanding his borders south and east into the region of the Burgundians, but he was able to push the Visigoths out of Gaul, confining them in Spain. In the Battle of Ollier, the Visigothic king Alaric II was killed. In appreciation for his service in defeating the Visigoths, the Eastern Emperor Anastasius I declared Clovis consul, or provocative title as it was reminiscent of the ancient Roman leaders. Clovis made Paris the new capital of the Frank kingdom and built an abbey dedicated to the saints Peter and Paul. Not long before he died, Clovis called the First Council of Orléans, a synod of 33 Gaelic bishops. The goal was to reform the church and forge an enduring link between the crown and the church. The council passed a little over 30 decrees that brought equality between the Frank conquerors and their Gaelic subjects. Clovis died in the fall of 511, leaving the kingdom to his four sons. Unlike Alexander the Great, who made no provision for the dividing of his empire among his four generals, Clovis carved up Gaul into four regions, one for each son, Reims, Orléans, Paris, and Soissons. Clovis naively thought that this would keep them content and result in peace. In truth, it ushered in a period of disunity which lasted to the end of the Merovingian dynasty in the mid-8th century. In episode 37, we looked at the 5th century Irish missionary Patrick. The Irish had never been a part of the Roman Empire. Though they had frequent contact with Roman Britain, the Irish Celts were culturally, economically, and politically quite different. When the Roman army abandoned Britain as too costly and difficult to defend, the church moved in to fill the vacuum. The spiritual outreach to Ireland was primarily the work of Patrick, who, though British, planted a church in Ireland that remained independent of the Roman Catholic Church. Patrick understood the evangelistic dynamic of the Christian faith and discerned that it alone offered what the native Druids could not, peace to a land that was troubled by constant tribal warfare. Patrick's strategy was to win the tribal leaders to Christ. Many local lords became Christians. And because of the way Celtic society was arranged, when the rulers converted, so did those they ruled. Ireland was ripe for the message and offer of the gospel. The religion practiced by the Druids was brutal, demonic, religious terrorism that many of the common people were eager to cast off. The gospel was about as opposite a message and offer from Druidism as one can imagine. There are estimates of as many as 100,000 genuine converts to Patrick's ministry. On the foundation of faith and church life that Patrick laid, Finian of Clonard built a pattern for Irish monasticism in the early 6th century. Monasteries were founded all over Ireland. As they rose in number and prestige, the ecclesiastical organization that Patrick established withered away. By the end of the 6th century, the Irish church had become a church of monks. Abbots replaced bishops as the leaders of the church. From the outset, Irish monks valued scholarship and an energetic spread of the gospel. Interestingly, there's evidence that the missionary fervor that stands as one of Celtic Christianity's major traits may have been due to their system of penance. In an earlier episode, we saw how the early church developed a view of repentance that included penance. The idea was that repentance needed to be demonstrated by some act showing contrition. Their theology went like this. Repentance was a heart issue that only God could see. But John the Baptist said, bring forth fruit worthy of repentance. So when people repented, their account before God was cleared, but how about restoring them to the community of faith, fellowship in the church? While man can't see the heart, he can see the actions that flow from that heart. 
penance became a system of works that people could perform to mark their repentance. It didn't take long before lists were made of what penance was due for what sins. One of the forms of penance that Celtic Christians practiced was exile, banishment from their homes. Some of the intense missionary activity of the Celtic Christians was motivated by this form of penance. Irish scholar monks ranged far and wide across Europe during the 6th and 7th centuries. This aggressive missionary activity of the Celtic Church eventually caused trouble since it remained independent from Rome. Churches started by Irish missionaries were often located in regions that later came under the control of Rome. In 636, South Ireland decided to fold their church community into the Roman Church. Then in 697, the church in Northern Ireland decided to follow suit. Though most of Celtic Christianity was eventually folded into Roman Catholicism, isolated communities scattered across Scotland, Wales, and the British Isles continued their independence for many years. One of the Celtic Irish missionaries who had a huge impact in Northern Europe was Boniface. Born named Winifred in the Anglo-Saxon kingdom of Wessex in the early 670s, his family was prosperous and sent him to school at a monastery in Exeter. The life of the monks appealed to Winifred, and against his father's wishes, he decided to pursue a religious career. He showed a mastery of the scriptures and great skill in teaching and organization, traits sought after in monastic life. For further training, he moved to a Benedictine monastery in Hampshire. This monastery was led by a brilliant abbot who'd made it an industrious center of scholarship. Winifred soon became a teacher in the monastery school and at the age of 30 was ordained as a priest. When the abbot died in 716, the logical choice to replace him was Winifred. But in a surprise move, he declined and left for the region of Frisia, what today we know as the Netherlands. Winifred had a passion to take the gospel of Christ where it was yet to be planted. He had heard of a similarly-minded missionary named Willebrod, who worked in Frisia and was calling for help. They spent a year together, but when war broke out, they returned home. A year later, Winifred went to Rome, seeking an audience with Pope Gregory II. He shared his vision of seeing the Germanic tribes delivered from their Arian heresy into the Catholic faith. Gregory replied, quote, You glow with the salvation-bringing fire which our Lord came to send upon the earth, unquote. The Pope renamed him Boniface after the 4th century martyr Boniface of Tarsus and appointed him as the missionary bishop for Germania. This meant that Boniface was a bishop without a diocese. The realm of his ministry had no churches. It was up to him to carry the light of Christ to the superstitious Germanic tribes and plant a church there. Boniface never returned to his native England. He focused his work in the regions of Hesse and Thuringia, leading thousands to Christ, and planted scores of churches. While the Germans were nominally Aryan, entire regions were still in reality pagan, worshipping the ancient German gods and practicing superstitious rites. Boniface found some supposedly Christian missionaries as he made his way through Germany, but they were espousing heresy. It was little wonder they had had little impact. When he confronted them, they resisted, and so Boniface had them arrested and confined, and for that he soon gained a reputation for being stern and determined. One story from Boniface's career is legendary. Whether or not it's factual is unknown. It's certainly not difficult to believe that a man who would go to Rome and ask permission to single-handedly carry the gospel to heretics and pagans <laughs> might do something like what we're about to hear.
Well, the story goes that Boniface went to Geismar in Hesse, where the Donar, or Thor's Oak, stood. As was common for Germans, they considered trees and forests to hold great spiritual power. Thor, god of thunder, was the chief deity in their pantheon. The Donar Oak was dedicated to his power and glory. Boniface knew there was no Thor and that there'd be no backlash if he chopped down a tree. Some Germans might protest and take it on themselves to defend Thor's honor. So Boniface called them to gather round and then set them this challenge. Let Thor, that mighty god of thunder, defend the tree himself. Certainly a god as great as the god of thunder could deal with a puny little Christian priest, unless there was no Thor and the Christian faith was true. Boniface lifted his axe and began to strike. No lightning followed. No thunder shook the ground. But according to his early biographer, Willibald, after Boniface had taken a dozen or so swings at the oak, a strong wind kicked up and knocked it over. It fell and broke into four pieces, revealing that it was in fact rotten. The message was clear. The old ways were like that rotten oak. The people were stunned as though being released from a prison in which they'd long been held and renounced their belief in the old gods and in mass converted to Christianity. Boniface then used the wood from the Donar Oak to build a church. His skill in administration brought a remarkable level of organization to the now rapidly growing German church. In 732, he was made archbishop over Germany. He worked for an educated, disciplined, and pure clergy, something he knew that in other parts of Europe was not the case. He tolerated neither laziness nor incompetency among clerics and purged the lingering rites of German paganism from church rituals. The syncretism that had been adopted in many other places, whereby pagan rites were absorbed into church traditions, was not something Boniface allowed. Using missionary volunteers from England, many of whom were women, he advanced organization and structure in the German church and filled it with zeal for obedience, service, and outreach. Along with his administrative and missionary work, Boniface built monasteries throughout Germany. The most influential was at Fulda, the geographical center of Germany. No church councils had been held in the Frankish realm for decades before his arrival. Boniface convened five of them between 742 and 47. At his urging, these councils adopted strict regulations for clergy and condemned local heretics. Boniface was a monk of the Benedictine order. The Benedictines emphasized poverty, moral purity, and obedience to Christ. Benedict's rule was the norm for monasteries throughout Europe at that time. They were places of worship, devotion, prayer, and scholarship, oases of culture and civilization in the midst of rank godlessness. Monks copied scriptures and early Christian literature. Monasteries were about the only educational centers during the medieval period, and had it not been for them, there would have been no Renaissance. The monasteries were where all the learning was kept that formed the intellectual base the Renaissance came from. Sadly, over the centuries, many monasteries forsook their spiritual roots and became places of immorality and corruption. Those Boniface founded, for the most part, remained places of education, hospitality, and missionary outreach. Boniface understood that all his work could turn to naught if war came, and so he worked to nurture peaceful relations between the Franks, Germanic tribes, and the church. He was crucial in negotiating a treaty between the Pope and the Frank King Pepin, that would eventually grow into a powerful church-state alliance later in the Middle Ages. After years of ministry in central Germany, Boniface again felt frizzy in the north calling to him. This was the place where he'd first tried his hand in missionary work. 
now in his late 70s, he resigned his post as the Archbishop of Mainz to head north once again. He and his followers roamed the countryside, destroying pagan shrines, building churches, and baptizing thousands. A group of new converts was supposed to meet Boniface and his 52 companions at Dorkham. While Boniface waited for them, a band of outlaws arrived. In his earlier travels, Boniface went with an armed guard commissioned by the Frank ruler. Now he was in a realm beyond Frank control. At the first council he'd called for years before, he'd pressed to disallow the clergy from carrying arms. All he had to defend himself was a large wood-covered book that he was reading. He wielded it as a shield. As he battled away the thrusts of the outlaws trying to stab him, I wonder if he regretted his previous position. A book makes a poor shield, even if its cover is a quarter-inch thick. Boniface and his entire party were slaughtered there on the shores of a river. When the converts arrived to meet up with him, they found his body, and next to it lay a copy of Ambrose's The Advantage of Death, with deep slashes in it. That book is now on display in Fulda. Thanks for joining us at Communio Sanctorum. We really appreciate your listening and subscribing. Listeners are invited to like the Communio Sanctorum Facebook page and to write a review in the iTunes store. For both Facebook and iTunes, search for History of the Christian Church. Looking forward to joining you next time.